The inquest slated for July 2015 actually began on the 7th of December. Sometimes the wheels of justice grind so slowly they hardly seem to be turning. By the time the inquest started, Matthew Levison had been gone for over eight years. His boyfriend Michael Atkins had stood trial for his murder and been found not guilty, and Matt's remains had never been recovered. Left in the kind of limbo that you wouldn't wish on your worst enemy, for his family, those eight years were torturous. Matt's parents, Mark and Faye, had vowed to find their son, so his brothers Pete and Jason didn't inherit the search after they were gone. Deputy State Coroner Elaine Truscott presided over the inquest, which heard from 27 witnesses, including eight police officers. The inquest would run periodically for over two years. Eight years on, what the Levisons needed most was to find their son, because in finding him, they might then know about his final moments. They might then learn if he suffered, or if it was quick. And when their questions were answered, they might lay him to rest in a ceremony befitting their boy. The week before the inquest was scheduled to begin, Matt's dad Mark met with the counsel assisting the coroner. It was a warm day, and when Mark removed his top, his commemorative tattoos became visible. On his arm was a tattoo which read, It's not a justice system. It's just a system. By then, the Levisons had seen the justice system in action and found no justice in it. Not for them and not for Matt. First met them, meet them before the inquest and I wore in a singlet covered by a warm top, a warm sloppy joe. And in our meeting I removed the sloppy joe and uh, on my arm I've got a tattoo saying it's not a justice system, it's just a system. And I said, now, it's your job to prove that wrong. Courtrooms are invariably full of legal folk, and inquests are no exception. With Matt's inquest, there was Deputy State Coroner Elaine Truscott at the helm, with Lester Fernandez as the counsel assisting the coroner. And then Michael Atkins had two lawyers representing him, Claire Wosley and Sharon Ramsden. When the Levisons were suggested they should engage a lawyer to represent their interests, they balked. It seemed ludicrous to them that they should have to pay a lawyer ten dollars to $12,000 a day when they had done nothing wrong. It also seemed unfair to expect any family to bear the prohibitive cost of legal representation in the act of seeking justice from a system that, as Mark's tattoo suggested, was not guaranteed to deliver it. The Levisons came up with a novel way to combat this. No, I just said the bullshit stops now. That's, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. So we went and applied to legal aid and... Uh, we knew we um, wouldn't, we knew we'd get, get, it. wouldn't get it. But I must say they were very good to us at legal aid. They sat with us for about two hours and instructed us on how the coroner's court worked, what acts empowered it, and what to read. So we did all that. And we read the book called Walla, which is like our Bible in New South Wales for the coroner's court and uh, read the act and... Uh, we came in well prepared and uh, we, knew, we knew the case back to front anyway. And that made it fairly easy in the inquest. Now, I had to be granted leave to appear and I was. So I sat at the bar table with, there was the, the counsel assistant, the coroner, there was me, the counsel for the police and the counsel for Atkins. We had a great coroner too. Elaine Truscott. Truscott. She was wonderful. She was compassionate. She was uh, 
fair. Um, no nonsense. No nonsense. Yeah, she, she took no crap from anybody in the court. And uh, I'm not sure she knew what we were like when we started, whether we were rednecks or what we were about. But uh, once we sort of made some complaints that were quite justified, she, uh, I think, respected that. When Mark took on the role of representing his family at the inquest, he did such an impressive job that some observers mistook him for a lawyer. After being excluded for several weeks from the murder trial because he was a witness and couldn't attend until after he gave evidence, there must have been a sense of reparation for him to not only be there, but to be collaborating with the decision makers. But as the inquest wore on, we became closer and closer. And we even to the point where we were discussing jointly questioning techniques, how we would approach him, what events we had and who would ask what. So it became a real collaboration at the end. Two reporters said to me in a break, he said, you're lucky your husband's a barrister. <laughs> wow. Oh, no. Oh, no. Not and I just cracked up. I just started. And then, what's wrong? What's wrong? I said, he's not a barrister. What? I said, he's an accountant. They couldn't believe it. And wow. even one of the, the police barristers said to Mark that he needed to change professions. You must have been so proud of Mark. I was, yeah. And the boys must have been too. Yeah. You know, it's no no mean task. Not at all. What he had to do. And as I said, I couldn't have done it. There's no way. My emotions would have got in the way. But it wasn't all smooth sailing. During the inquest, it was discovered that some crucial evidence had been missing for a while. This was noted by the coroner. No one could find the audio tapes from the Levison's covert recording of Atkins or the hard copies of crime scene photos or the unedited search warrant video. These had all been misplaced by Miranda police and weren't available to be shown to the inquest. So where was the missing box of evidence? One box, it's such a huge story. It is a massive story. It starts in the inquest. There was missing parts of missing transcripts, parts of missing... Videos, Videos, audio footage documents and uh, the coroner is getting most annoyed that this information couldn't be found by Gary's good team of police. You know, very thorough, good team. They couldn't find this. And the coroner made them report to her as how evidence is stored, where it's stored, how it can be lost, why it can get lost. And uh, they themselves took time and the, the press picked up on it and were really making a big fuss of this missing box of evidence, what they called it. And one night, I'm guessing it was the Thursday of that week after court, late one night. Five to nine. Yeah, five to nine, we had a phone call. I think it was to my phone, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, it was a former detective from the case. Husband. Yes, a detective's husband. Uh, He'd been cleaning out the roof that day and he found the box of evidence in the roof. So Mark said, we'll come and get it. We got back in the car because we'd just come home from the shops. We got back in the car, didn't even get to the end of the driveway and the former detective phones. They found it in the roof, but she had a funeral to go to that day and that's why they're ringing that late that night. And, you know, she was, they were saying so much about it in the media, which worried her. So Mark said, we're on our way. Yes, okay, that's fine. Hold it, we're coming down now. So we headed straight there. It turned out that one of the detectives on the case in the early days had taken boxes of evidence home when she was working on the brief all those years ago. 
Whilst she had returned all the other boxes, she hadn't returned the final one. Since then, she'd left the police force and the box had been put into storage in her roof space. When news of the missing evidence hit the media, the former detective realised it might still be in her roof. And it was. Mystery solved. The minute she found it, she called the Levisons. So on the way down there, I said to Martin, we should be ringing the police. So we couldn't get in contact with Gary or Scott. So we, let, we rang Miranda Police Station, said we really desperately need to talk to one of them. Didn't hear anything. We got down there, got the box of evidence, and she's going on about how badly they're talking about it in the press. And, but the box uh, itself, a box that had been in the roof, was remarkably clean. No dead insects, no dust, no bugs on it, no spider webs. It was uh, in pristine conditions with the big letters on the side. Now, Leveson, murder, box five of five. And there's no malice involved or any of that nature. As a case of this, the detective was conscientious and, and took evidence boxes out to do work on for inquests and the trial, etc. and uh, had, for some reason, never returned this, this one single box. So we put them back of the car and uh, headed back. In making the late-night dash to collect the box, Mark's primary concern was for the chain of custody of the evidence. By now, he'd been around lawyers long enough to know that evidence moves from person to person in a carefully documented chain of custody that maintains its integrity. Once Detective Chief Inspector Gary Jublin called back, he soon put Mark's mind at ease. And our concern was, you know, could we have contaminated with the evidence by us picking it up? And uh, once we left the house, of course, our phone started ringing. All the police we'd called again back to us. And I think Gary was first. And we said, you know, that missing box. He said, yeah. I said, well, guess what? It's in the back of the car right now. But we're concerned that it's now contaminated. He said, no, no. The detective who took it from the police station didn't sign it out. Otherwise, they would have known where it was. At that point, it can be contaminated. So what we've done is done nothing worse, nothing further to this than what there is. So... Bring it back and we'll get it from in the morning. So we put it back and um, that night we laid every article in that box on a lounge room floor here behind me and photographed the lot so we knew what we had and it was all recorded. We then prepared a statement for the coroner the next morning of exactly the circumstances under which we'd recover the evidence and uh, funnily enough, she, that morning in court she said, ladies and gentlemen, there's been a development since yesterday about that missing evidence and so looked at me and smirked and put her head down again and that read out my statement and the evidence was tendered to court. When Gary Jubelin and his team went back over all the old evidence, they discovered something that had been missed by the original investigators. Atkins had always claimed that he'd taken Matt home from the Ark nightclub at 2.10am because he was drug-affected and couldn't stay awake. The CCTV footage of them leaving shows Matt striding out. At the inquest, Detective Bateman from the Homicide Squad, who was working with Gary Jubelin preparing the matter for the inquest, testified that when viewing the footage, Matt appears to be walking confidently, doesn't appear to sway, to stutter, doesn't appear to lack in any physical function whatsoever. Bateman also testified that as Atkins and Matt leave Ark, the footage showed the gap between the two widens and that they look like they're walking apart from one another. It also turned out that there was an hour missing from Matt's final night at the Ark nightclub. While Matt and Atkins are seen leaving at 2.10am, it looked like Atkins came back an hour later, alone. 
Gary Jubelin's team discovered that when they reviewed the CCTV more thoroughly. Atkins claimed he took Matt home because Matt was so drug-affected that he was concerned for him and wanted to look after him. Yet, this is contradicted by CCTV footage from ARC that showed Atkins returning to the footpath outside the club at 3.15am. The original investigating police did not discover this. They evidently didn't review the CCTV footage at ARC as closely as they should have. The fact that Atkins came back an hour after he left suggested he was not as concerned about Matt as he claimed. Or perhaps Matt and Atkins had gone to the car rather than going home because Matt had sent a series of messages in a coherent exchange with his friend who was given the pseudonym John Burns. The last message sent by Matt was at 3.31am. For clarity, here is the exchange again. 3.03am. John to Matt. Hey babe, where are you? 3.20am. Matt to John. Mike's having a fucking cry. He's taken me home and won't let me stay. Fucking cunt. 3.20am. John to Matt. Oh shit, that's not too good. 3.31am. Matt to John. He needs to get over himself. 3.32am. John to Matt. Oh well, I'm sure you'll be all right. Atkins' story was that Matt was badly drug-affected and was pulling manky faces, the kinds of faces one makes when affected by GHB, and was not capable of looking after himself. Other witnesses who saw Matt in the club that night suggested otherwise, that Matt was alert, not sleepy, and not pulling manky faces. There was more than one person who Matt confided in that Atkins was possessive and controlling. They gave evidence about this as well. Perhaps the biggest thing that happened at the inquest was that the whole of Atkins' police interview was played, including his denials that he left his apartment on the Sunday, except for a short stroll. This was the first time people were able to hear and see him denying going to Bunnings, which of course meant the CCTV footage of him at Bunnings caught him out in the lie. The unedited footage of the search on Atkins' apartment on the 27th of September 2007 was played for the court. This showed the subwoofer in the garage of the apartment complex that had been in Matt's car on that last Saturday when he had driven away from work before his night out. The search video also showed the drugs and the cash found at the apartment. Footage showed Atkins saying they belonged to Matt. That's what we usually fought about, is him doing that, Atkins says for the camera. Another revelation at the inquest was that when a subsequent search was conducted, police found a car key with a red tag on it. This was a key to Matt's car. It was significant as it was the only key found for Matt's car, but it was found in the shelf area that separated the lounge from the kitchen, an area that had been searched previously by the police during the first search. It was also confirmed that the clothes Matt and Atkins wore on that last night to Ark were never located afterwards. Neither were the duct tape and mattock he'd bought at Bunnings on the day Matt disappeared. Footage from a Channel 10 news segment was played to the court. The segment showed reporter Evan Batten following Atkins prior to his appearance at court for his drugs charges. A statement from Mr Batten said that the footage was around August 2008. In the footage, Atkins could be heard saying, 
I wasn't the last person to see him. And when asked who was? Several people. Since the inquest started on the 7th of December, it was always going to run through what would have been Matt's birthday on the 12th. Perhaps through luck rather than design, the Monday after Matt's birthday was also the first day Atkins was present at the inquest after being served a subpoena requiring him to attend and give evidence. Mark and Faye were touched when the coroner acknowledged the significance of the date. The coroner announced in court one morning, I'd like to extend to Levison family my, my best wishes. I realised today's Matt's birthday. Isn't that incredible? Not surprisingly, Atkins showed no emotion. And he sat there stony-faced. Didn't flinch. At the inquest, the detective who was in charge of the investigation at the very early stages confirmed that after she had finished the formal interview of Atkins on Thursday the 27th of September, she remained with Atkins in the interview room for about 10 minutes. During that time, she said to Atkins, Michael, please tell me what happened to Matt. He doesn't deserve to be left where he is. Atkins responded, I want to tell you, but I am scared about what will happen to me if I do. The detective said after that, he looked down at his hands, appeared nervous and refused to make eye contact. One key witness who'd given three statements to police was a person who was given the pseudonym Jack Smith, one of Atkins' best friends. We mentioned Jack in earlier episodes. It was Jack's unit that Matt, Atkins and Pete Levison went to before going to the Ark nightclub that night. By this stage, Jack had given three police statements and testified at the criminal trial and again now at the inquest. Jack's statements are a little hard to follow. In his first police statement, Jack said that Matt was drug-affected and that's why Atkins took him home. However, Jack later conceded at the inquest that he did not witness this. He based his description on what Atkins had told him. In Jack's second statement that he made eight months later, he changed his story. Now he remembered that he actually observed Matt in the car just prior to he and Atkins leaving to drive home to Cronulla. He said that Matt was pulling manky faces due to taking too much GHB and Atkins was sitting next to him in the driver's seat. In Jack's third statement, given seven years after his second, just before the inquest, Jack said he believed the only reason Matt and Atkins left the club was because Matt was heavily affected by GHB. Yet, in the very next line, he conceded he didn't see Matt in the club before they left. There is no mention of observing Matt pulling manky faces in the car outside the club. However, when testifying at the inquest, Jack Smith gave evidence that he did in fact see Matt in the car, and Matt was pulling manky faces, and was also flailing his arms. But this time, Atkins wasn't next to Matt in the car. Jack Smith was talking to Atkins outside the vehicle. When Jack was challenged on these key discrepancies at the inquest, he conceded that actually, maybe it wasn't September 23rd, 2007, when he saw Matt pulling manky faces in the car. Maybe that was another night. The term manky faces is important, as Atkins used that word many times when describing Matt that night. However, Atkins and Jack Smith are the only two people who observed this. Jack is the only witness who gives evidence, as ever-changing as it was, 
supporting Atkins' story of Matt pulling manky faces. Jack's evidence stood out all the more because there were so many other witnesses who gave evidence that Matt did not appear as he and Atkins described. He gave police a statement two weeks after Matt was killed. He gave the second statement one year after Matt was killed. He testified at the criminal trial and testified at the inquest. Four occasions, four different stories. And Mark called him out and... Then at one stage there he was describing about Matt being locked in the car, high on drugs and bashing his head against the window. And at that point I just screamed out, you let him die. And Lester almost had him and I just I couldn't stand it any longer. Lester was the council assistant coroner. And so what became of that? Well, we, we they discussed stopped. We, we looked at that in more detail that night. We were checking, just I was looking here at Google Earth and realising the car was parked in a one-way street, not a two-way street. The car wasn't parked illegally, so we knew which way the car was facing. And it was most unlikely they would have approached the car from the front because it was way out of the way to go to the car from the front in that street going from Ark. And next morning I showed the council assistant the coroner what I'd found. He said, you're right, they can't approach the car from the front. So he couldn't have seen what he's saying, he's lying. But it just got so graphic and I couldn't—I I just couldn't take it anymore as a mum to hear that he was hitting his head against the window and he and Atkins were talking outside the car meanwhile Maddie's doing this. And if I stopped and thought about it, if I'd been rational about it, Matt after that had messaged his mate. So if I'd thought about it, but just the thought of Maddie Well, he, he, messaged, being, he messaged his mate quite coherently. He was no, no yeah, way he was trying and to I just said the time, just the way he was describing it and he was getting very graphic. Mark Leveson submitted to the inquest that Jack Smith knew something about Matt's death, that he was keeping a secret. But any conclusions Deputy State Coroner Truscott drew needed to be based on evidence. Accordingly, she determined that while Jack Smith was a most unreliable and unimpressive witness who has a poor recollection of events and cannot now separate what Mr Atkins told him from what he in fact saw or did not see, There was no evidence to support the contention that Jack Smith had some involvement with Matt's death or that he knew something about Matt's death that he had kept secret. The coroner also concluded that Mr Smith's evidence about seeing Matt in this drug-affected state was inconsistent with Matt being able to send the text messages around that time to Mr John Burns. Further, it was inconsistent with all previous statements of Mr Smith and his evidence at Mr Atkins' trial. On Thursday the 18th of February 2016, Atkins was subpoenaed to give evidence. He was sworn in and took the witness stand. Mr Fernandez, on behalf of the Crown solicitor, asked Atkins his first question. Where is Matt's body? Atkins refused to answer the question and objected to answering any questions on the grounds that any such evidence he gives may incriminate him. Atkins was then granted a Section 61 certificate. This would mean that any evidence or admissions given by him and any evidence obtained as a consequence of those admissions or evidence could not be used against him in any criminal proceedings. It was the deal with the devil. The belief was that the only way Atkins would speak is if he was granted immunity for what he said. For the Levisons, the most important thing was finding Matt. It had been nine years since he disappeared. 
Here's how Mark Levison answered the question put to him in the inquest. Question. What you and all your family wish is to be able to lay Matt to rest with dignity. Is that right? Answer. Right now, the best we can do is a tattoo on my right shoulder, which is Matt's tombstone. We have nothing more than that, and that I see every day. So we certainly want to do more than that and have a formalised place where we can go and pay our respects to Matt. So when the Section 61 first came up, were you all on board with that to go ahead? Mark was the first to put his hand up. Jason and I were against it. I think Pete was in the beginning and then he went on board with Mark. So there was two wanted it and two didn't. And then Gary spoke to us and he put it this way, if we don't go ahead with it, it was most probably going to be lose-lose. Well, he thought the, at that stage the inquest was going nowhere. The inquest was, was right. going. And so, therefore, the case would just go back to cold case and probably never see the light of day again. We'll just sit there. So he said this way it could be a win-lose that we get Matt back, but he walks, or a win-win. But doing it, we've got a 50% chance of getting Matty back, which was the most important thing to us. So I said, okay. Jason didn't want it, and I'll always respect that. He had the tenacity, and he stood up, and he, he said no, and I've got to respect that, and I respect that to this day. That's his brother. And the, even the coroner in her findings, she commended Jason. And so um, we went ahead with it. Well, before the going ahead, we had to testify in court, all of us, in the witness box. Except that we, Jason. That we understood what the section meant, what the ramifications were. And yeah, when I was up there, I thought I'm going to push this. And uh, I said, look, Your Honour, we know what this section means. Uh, we want some questions answered. They're macabre questions, but we do need answers for these things. We need to know why he was killed, where he was killed, how he was killed. Detective Gary Jubelin advocated for the Levison family and for the interest of justice, for the coroner to compel Atkins to give evidence. Jubilin's testimony also addressed problems with the original police investigation. He spoke about lost opportunities, but conceded the deficiencies in an investigation were often more obvious in hindsight. That was in the inquest, yep. Yeah, that was in, actually in testimony. Yep. And the good thing with Gary, he pulls no punches. He tells the truth. He calls a spade a spade. If the police have done something wrong, he'll admit to it. He won't try and cover it up. Just admit to it. Own it. While the Levison family has raised a number of concerns about the police investigation, particularly in relation to continuity of the lead detective and their treatment by some of the investigators, a critique of the investigation was not the focus of the inquest. On the 20th of May 2016, Deputy State Coroner Truscott determined that the Section 61 certificate should be granted and ordered Atkins to give evidence at the inquest under its protection. Atkins appealed to the New South Wales Court of Appeal to overturn the decision. The appeal was presided over by Justice Lucy McCallum on the 5th of September 2016. On the 12th of October 2016, Justice McCallum published her decision. Atkins would be made to testify. Justice McCallum stated that, The right to silence is of course important, but so is the coroner's jurisdiction. 
the existence of the coroner's power to grant a certificate under Section 61 of the Coroner's Act acknowledges the prospect that there will be cases in which higher value will be placed on determining the manner and cause of a person's death than on the prosecution of any criminal offence. Accordingly, Atkins was left with no choice but to provide evidence at Matt's inquest under the Section 61 Certificates Protection, meaning any evidence or admissions given by him and any evidence obtained as a consequence of those admissions or evidence could not be used against him in any criminal proceedings. Our goal was, as Faye said, we wanted Matt back. That was our, our gamble. And keep in mind too, it's a person's right when the director under Section 61 to testify, it's their right to object to that. Atkins did that. And he then went to the Supreme Court, added more months to the inquest where he formally appealed against testifying. And Justice Lucy McCallum in the Supreme Court denied the appeal. And so he's in the witness box. On the next episode of Maddie. Towards the end, he wouldn't let Matt out of his sight. What else are Maddox used for? Digging a grave? Could be. Yeah, acquittal does not mean innocent. It was just like the whole world's against us. 